question regarding meditation or regarding Dharma, anything that's on their mind, to please uh, offer it to us as a topic of discussion. That's a, that is a very good question. I'm, uh, the practice of uh, generating loving kindness and directing it to other people does go back to the time of the Buddha himself, because uh, you know we find that there's the Metta Sutta, uh, the Loving Kindness Sutra, which is uh, uh, it's often chanted or, or sung, you know, as well as read and as part of loving-kindness meditation. So um, I don't really know, but based on that, I would, uh, I would suspect that the more active forms of meditation uh, probably have been around just about, at least since the time of the Buddha, if not before. But certainly, uh, since that original time, a, a lot of more complex active meditations have been developed. But I, I think that the roots probably go back a long way. Um, you know, there, there's, there's actually quite a variety of different kinds of meditations. And there's a lot of overlap in them. But they do, you know, they do direct themselves towards uh, specific purposes. And if you think about, you know, the, the simplest way of regarding the function of our minds is, on the one hand, there is the receptive, you know, where we're observing, we're uh, learning, we're understanding, and the other is that we're doing. Makes sense to to use both and to cultivate both. Would some of it be called contemplation? Well, that's a that's one of those words that uh, 
especially more recently, different people have started using it in different ways. Uh, I, the way that I have always understood contemplation uh, is that this is a, a more of a discursive process, an intellectually active process. And so, uh, you know, those things that are called analytical meditation would be called contemplation. But um, I can say this, you know, people use the word contemplation in different ways. I remember before I really knew anything about meditation and Buddhism, that the uh, uh, only thing I knew was Buddhism. Oh, those are those people who are contemplating Nagel. So <laughs> whatever that means. I, I don't think that was discursive thought about it. <laughs> analytical thought. But yeah, that, actually the point maybe is that uh, there, there are meditations that are uh, discursive in nature and analytical in nature. Uh, and those are very powerful, very useful meditations as well. The most, uh, I'd say the three most widely forms of meditation worldwide, you know, in and all the different cultures are. Um, those that uh, cultivate, they're dedicated primarily towards uh, cultivating a tranquil, quiet, peaceful state of mind. Those that, uh, dedicate, that are dedicated towards developing a very high level of uh, uh, awareness, conscious awareness and observational capacity and then those that uh, develop uh, some strong emotional state of devotion or loving kindness or something like that, primarily emotional. And in, uh, in, in Buddhism, and in particular the tradition that you know I come from and teach, there's this very strong combination of both the, the uh, tranquility and the uh, high level of conscious awareness, the samatha vipassana uh, tradition is what it's called. But even even there, that gets divided up, and there's some people that just do samatha by itself, uh, and some people that just do vipassana insight meditation without first developing concentration and tranquility. So a lot of different variations. On these, on these things. I think less common are the analytical meditations, but that's probably something that's unfortunate because I think they're very useful. Can you speak a little bit more about what those are, analytical meditations? Um, yes. Maybe. Uh, first, to tell you that there is, if you start out doing a meditation on the breath, you'll reach a stage where your mind, where your attention becomes very stable. And that's, that is a good place to begin analytical meditations. Because otherwise, you do an analytical meditation, which is sitting there thinking, and you know, the 
common experience is you decide to sit it out, sit down and think about something, and your mind doesn't quite know where to stop, and you end up going all over the place, and often you totally lose track of what it was the problem that you were trying to figure out. So it's, uh, there is, in terms of mental training, a particular level of attentional stability that's very conducive to doing contemplation or analytical meditation so that you can stay focused on the particular uh, thing that you're meditating on. And then there is a, a simple little method that has four parts to it. And it's very interesting. We find it both in uh, Eastern traditions and it's also found in Christianity where it's called the Lectio Divina. Uh, and I don't know whether at some point way back in history that there was some contact because the similarity between them is remarkable. They both have the same four stages. The first is, uh, you know, you, prior to doing the meditation, you've selected the, the subject of the meditation, the topic, and uh, usually you have, uh, you might have memorized a, a paragraph or you might have read something, uh, a, a, a piece of scripture, or read something that's on this particular topic and it's fresh in your mind. So then you sit down to meditate, and the first thing that you do is you just, if, if it's something you've memorized, you might repeat it in your mind, or if it's something you've read, you might just sort of review it. And the idea is that you're, you're looking for the beginning place. And there's two metaphors that are used to describe this. One is like you've got a, a, a ball of golden thread that's all tangled up. And so you turn it around, you're looking for the end of the thread so you can begin to unravel it. And the other is that it's like there's a, a, a castle and it contains this wonderful treasure and you're, you're circling around it looking for an entrance for a way to, to get in. But as you as you sort of roll around the, the topic of your meditation in your mind, at some point something sort of grabs your attention and it is your it is your thread, it's the beginning of the thread. So that's that's the first stage. And then the second stage of course is that you you begin to discursively analyze and, and uh, you know, think through the problem or examine the topic and looking for either some sort of resolution or some deeper understanding. And uh, when that occurs, that brings you to the third stage. In the third stage, what you do is you review exactly how you got to that understanding. So you sort of go back to to the logical steps that brought you to that place of clarity or that place of resolution. And then in the fourth step, you just hold that understanding as an object of, uh, uh, as a meditation object and you just meditate on it for a period of time. Um, now, not always in the process of doing an analytical meditation will you arrive at the third stage where uh, you have you have uh, something that you can 
say this is the result of it. But that's all right. When the bell rings, you get up and you go back to doing whatever you do. And very often, though, the understanding will come later on. So, what kind of a topic would you take? Well, uh, very good, very useful topics are things like what we've been talking about recently. You know, the uh, the idea that uh, that you can describe everything that makes up uh, a person by uh, the, the five aggregates or the five pandas, you know, which we've talked about recently. But so that would be a very appropriate topic for what, what you might do is find something that somebody has written or listen to a Dharma talk on it and then sit down and just try to really understand. And you don't worry about whether you go through all five of them if you only figure out one of them really clearly and understand exactly what's meant by that and you know what the ramifications are of it being included in this particular group and so forth. Uh, or it could be something more focused, like uh, the, uh, the idea of uh, the, the first noble truth is, you know, that life is pervaded by suffering or dissatisfactoriness. And you could just sit down and that could be the subject of your meditation, your intellectual exploration. At some point, what all of these things in, uh, at least in terms of Buddhism, are directed towards, sooner or later you're focusing in on this question of, of the nature of the self. You know, and does the self, the way all my life I'm, I'm used to feeling I, I am this self, uh, does that really exist? And, and what am I? What, what, what is really there? And so that's a very uh, important and appropriate topic for this kind of meditation. But it's really broader than that. Anything could be. It could be more general. You could have a situation in your life and, uh, and uh, you could say about the situation that you've got, you've got to say, what would the Buddha do? And that would be, that would be a good topic for analytical meditation. What if, I want to do, what are the conflicts that I feel if I did this or if I didn't do that and so forth, and then try to put it in the context of, okay, so that's my feelings about it, what would the Buddha do? You know, what can you learn from it? That would, I, almost anything. This, you could take the six perfections one by one. You could take the six perfections one by one. As a matter of fact, uh, that is, that's a very good practice that's often done as a part of preliminary meditation is to take the six perfections one by one and reflect on what they are, how they're, how they're to be practiced, and how, how well you have been practicing them. They have so many subtleties. It's so a they, ill will, right. like we, we talked about ill will today, and you, yeah. know, you could spend a long time thinking of all the different kinds of ill will. Yes, that's and true. very yeah. subtle yeah. ill wills. And, and that's the other thing that the, about these things is the kinds of topics we're talking about. You might, the first time you hear about them or read about them, it might be, oh, I understand what that is. But 
you know, what you'll discover over time is, yeah, there is so much more depth to it. There is so much more subtlety to it. And so sometimes you can take something that you think you're very familiar with and you understand quite well and, and uh, discover all sorts of new things. But one of the richest places to examine it is taking any of these things as ideas, as abstractions, and applying them to the reality of life as we actually live it. You know? uh, so I, a lot of times in the kind of discussions we have, Dharma talks about these things, it can be rather one-dimensional. It's sort of abstract, it's, it's intellectual, it's conceptual. Um, but if you add to it the, the, all of the other dimensions of your personal experience, your emotional life, your interactions with different people, you know, what does ill will mean in terms of the problem you have with your brother, your relationship with your neighbor, all these other kinds of things. Or with yourself. And that's one where two there's a lot to be discovered there, too, because it's easy to take these things and only project them outward and forget that we also have a relationship with the person that we are, too. We also uh, judge, criticize, uh, have all sorts of uh, ill will and negative emotions regarding ourselves. And that's a legitimate topic, topic of contemplation. Yes, yes, abs absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Jim, now that, that's a rather advanced meditation technique just for the simple reason that most people, until they've trained their mind to a certain degree, can't, don't really have much luck at just being able to do that. They get swept away, carried away. And, you know. But uh, in terms of that category of, of meditations that the primary intent of which is to gain insight and understanding. Uh, and uh, we find it in, in different cultures. The uh, just sitting practice or shikantaza practice of Zen is, is one form of doing that. No particular object, but just staying right here in the present and just being with whatever comes up. And then uh, there's also uh, a form of it that's called Mahamudra, which um, presupposes that a person has already a, a great deal of mental stability and they've cultivated a very high level of, of conscious awareness. And what they do is that they make their mind open and expansive and just let whatever you know, sensation or thought, emotion, anything that happens to come up, just let it arise and pass away 
without pursuing it, without grasping onto it. So, uh, so the, these are very powerful meditation techniques, but they, uh, they can be quite difficult unless you first spend a little time doing another kind of training that settles your mind down a bit. I'm smiling because I didn't know there was a name for that. Yeah. And we had a teacher in Portland that oh, yeah. the object was just to sit. Yeah. Just sit. Just sit. And, and focus to yeah. sit in that time. Like you said, my, yeah. one of my problems is not giving it that time. Yeah, like a discipline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it has names and it. it's, uh, it has different names in different places. But yeah, that, that's, uh, uh, I, I believe, uh, if I understand correctly, that the literal translation of the Japanese Sheikh and Taza is just sitting. I think that's what it, what it really means. How about more direct, personal, anybody have any? Less theoretical and abstract questions. <laughs> I guess that's what I mean. Yeah. What about dealing with um, <coughs> things that you know you have done wrong in the past? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a person you've wronged, or mm -hmm. and the, the circumstances may be ongoing or may just be in the past. What What is the, the Buddhist take on that? <laughs> That's a very good question, and as a matter of fact, that's that's a kind of thing that <coughs> does come up in meditation because um, in order to become very calm and very focused, we sooner or later have to deal with all of these things that we have uh, buried or, or pushed aside. So. Uh, there's things that we have done in the past that we may not even think about, but they're still affecting us, and they're still producing some <coughs> disturbance and agitation in the mind. And uh, when you get into deeper states of meditation, all of a sudden you find there it is. Sometimes it comes up and it's right away recognizable. Sometimes you first become aware of the emotions associated with it, and, and it takes a little while before uh, enough of it emerges that you recognize what it is. And the other kind of thing is, uh, is of course, as you say, ongoing, ongoing situations that you're in. And we become, we're all very, very adept, very skilled at compartmentalizing those things and pushing them aside and, and Feeling like, even though they're ongoing, feeling like they're not, uh, they're not a problem. But once again, you know, as uh, in meditation, as your mind settles down, you discover that there, there, you can't really hide any of this stuff. It's, it's sooner or later it comes up, and so you are left with the question of what you do about it. Um, what you Ultimately, what you need to do with it is to get completely beyond it, to resolve it, let go of it, be finished with it once and for all. But what you may have to do 
to make that happen is that's that's the the other kind of question. Things that have happened a long time ago. There is often less that you can actually do uh, in terms of actual actions or saying things. But sometimes there is. You know, and sometimes uh, even though it's long in the past, uh, if you can make some kind of reparation or an apology or something like that, this will ease uh, a lot of uh, the emotional attachment that you still have to it. And right now, just because of the way you, you stated your question, I was sort of speaking in terms of something that you may have done that you're disturbed by. But, you know, it also includes things that were done to you and you're still carrying resentment and anger. It can be any kind of thing, you know. But if there's anything that you can do to let go of the emotional baggage uh, that you carry associated with some past action, you know, uh, if it's something you did, you're going to need to forgive yourself and you're going to need to do whatever you can do to help you forgive yourself. If it's something somebody else did, you're not going to need to forgive them and you're going to need to do whatever's necessary to bring you to that place. Because you want to be able to let go of it. You want to be able to just look at it, confront it, say that's past, that's settled, that's over and done with, there's nothing left, there's no reason to hold on to it anymore. So as long as you have something that's making you hold on to it that you can do something about, the easiest thing to do is to go ahead and do something about it. <laughs> and then it makes that next step of of letting go a lot easier because because now you you you've, you've done the thing. There's not some part of your mind niggling away that well you could do this. You could phone them up and say I'm sorry or you or whatever it is, right? But if it's in your mind as a possibility and you haven't done it, it might continue to be in the way of letting go. If it's something that's ongoing, uh, you're not only going to have to let go of the feelings that you have about what you've already done, you're going to have to stop doing it as well. And sometimes, you know, that that might uh, mean that you have to do something in terms of the actual situation or relationship, but you're definitely, definitely going to have to do something about uh, what's happening in you that keeps it going. So, uh, for example, you have a relationship with a close family member that's a problem. And what, what we always tend to do is to see how it's a problem because of what the, the way the other person is, right? what they do. And even when we look at the part of it that involves us, we tend to see it as uh, not something that, as something that, well, it's, it's, it's bound to be that way. How, how else could I react to? You know, anybody feel this way. Uh, in other words, we have the kind of thoughts that actually keep us from making any sort of necessary change. So, 
what, and this is where the power of mindfulness comes in. Mindfulness, the practice of mindful awareness is just clearly observing what's really going on, especially in yourself, in situations like this. And uh, a very useful way to start, uh, you know, suppose there's, suppose there's a problem you have with a family member and you have, it creates a lot of resentment, negative emotions, disagreements, whatever it is that you're experiencing in yourself. And of course, the dynamic is that you'll do or say something and they'll do or say something, so it never kind of ends. What you have to do is start just observing yourself. You observe, okay, what are, first of all, what are the sensations in my body that are associated with every aspect of this situation? And that can, that gives mindful awareness some ground to, to, to start to see in. And then you can go from the way it makes you feel physically to the kinds of, of feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness and other emotional things that are there. You try not to judge. You just look at them. You just... The magic of this, and I, I'm seeing it now. I've been talking about this and practicing this for years, but I, I have a new paradigm by which to see it. This is a feedback paradigm. What mindful awareness does is it gives all the other parts of your mind feedback into the actual results of their action, of their states of being. You know, uh, forget the idea that you have a mind. You have a vast collection of mental processes and they're all got their own agendas and they're all doing their own things. And in these kinds of situations that we're talking about, there's a variety of processes taking place at an unconscious level that are producing our emotions and, and our actions and our reactions and perpetuating them. And they're able to keep doing this because they never get the right feedback. You know, they don't get the feedback that, well, being with her makes me feel terrible and it's because of the way I'm reacting. Instead, they get the feedback being with her makes me feel terrible, and it's all her fault. And so those unconscious <coughs> mental processes don't have the feedback they need to stop creating the same situation. Whereas you put mindful awareness in there, you see what's actually taking place. You see how it feels physically, you see how it feels mentally, you see how your, your reactions, you see where they're coming from, uh, where they're coming from your own past stuff and your own you know, everybody's got some collection of neurotic tendencies, some degree of insecurity or, or, you know, things that other people, that you don't like about yourself that other people remind you of. You don't need to analyze all that stuff. You just need to open yourself to letting, letting that information seep in and percolate down to, to that 99% of your mind that never sees the, the the light of conscious awareness, but determines all of your feelings and reactions and everything else. So you let mindfulness provide that feedback, and then you know those parts of your mind that are contributing to the problem, they begin to change. So you you combine 
the practice of mindful awareness with the recognition, with the things that you, that originally brought you to this. You realize that there's, uh, there, there, there's guilt or there's uh, agitation, there's different kinds of feelings that come up and plague you because of this situation. And there's the obvious things that you can do, like re restraining from saying certain kinds of things or restraining from engaging in certain kinds of actions that are not going to produce beneficial results, but then practicing the mindfulness that's going to get to the root of the problem. So you, you have to deal with you have to deal with both the past and the old stuff, and you have to deal with the present stuff. And uh, the the primary tool for dealing with it is just mindful awareness. If it's old stuff, you just look at it and see it for what it really is. And you try to get that place of accepting it and letting go of it. And you do whatever you have to to allow that to happen. Sometimes with old stuff, the person involved is dead. Well, that doesn't keep you from talking to them or writing a letter to them or whatever works for you. Whatever you need to do, you find a way to do it. When it's in the present, it's the same thing. You put your mind, put full mindfulness on the situation, and you try to catch yourself anytime your mind does any of its tricks of, you know, well, this is uncomfortable to look at, so we'll think of something else or do something else, or uh, blame the, the unpleasant feelings that you have physically or mentally on the situation or on the other person instead of realizing that where they come from is inside you because of what your mind is doing. So you just bring the mindfulness to bear. And then you also do whatever you have to and whatever you can, you know, in terms of that part of ourself that, that intentionally acts and can therefore refrain from speaking or refrain from doing. We all have a lot of those kinds of things in our life. And one of the things that is very valuable uh, however it comes about, whether it comes about as a result of your meditation practice or in any other way, as we begin to be aware of the kind of things that you spoke about, and as we accept responsibility for them, and as we begin to deal with them in positive ways, there tend to be a lot of them. And if we had to deal with every single one of them individually, uh, you know, it might seem like it would take forever. But the wonderful thing is, is that as we deal with those that we become aware of, it begins, the same work starts being done, and uh, a lot of them get taken care of without our ever having to, to deal with them one by one. And it's not a process of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. You know, we're not trying to retrieve all these past events and work them through, or we're not trying to take our present problems and, and you know, analyze the personality. We don't have to do all of that kind of stuff. We, 
we let it take care of itself of itself through the practice of mindfulness and doing what's obvious that we can do and that we need to do. And which is mostly it, it can involve some doing, but an awful lot of it is not doing. You know, some problem that, just an example, some problem that you have with somebody that you work with, and the old way of thinking says, you know, well, I'm going to write all the bad things about this person down in a memo, and I'm going to send it to the boss. I've had enough. That's the old way of dealing things. And that that doesn't resolve the problem because the boss doesn't read your memo and fire the person, or go to the person and say, "Here's, here's your, here's Jack's memo," and then that person reads it and they change all the things in themselves because they say, "Oh my gosh, you were right all along." Right? You know, isn't it funny though? Our minds, our minds will make us think that something like that will work. You know, and people do that a lot. But kind of thing that I just described, right? Do, do you not agree? They, they have a fantasy that it's going to produce a kind of result which it absolutely could never possibly produce. And all it does is just make the problem worse. So some of it is just learning to not do that kind of stuff. Well, I'm going to phone my brother up and tell him once and for all exactly what I think of everything. And that never helps. <laughs> Better. I'm going to phone myself up and find out. <laughs> find out what's really going on inside me when I do this. Okay. I have a question. Yes. So I'm taking what you just said and, and <coughs> trying to pull it along to something else where there's two people who have an issue. And you could be in the place of being mediator for them. Mm -hmm. So I'm almost thinking that maybe you don't want the two people to really talk about the details mm -hmm. because they would be like the letters, mm -hmm. but you just want them to be together? Um, I, I, I think sometimes that uh, if you can do that. The thing that people do is that we just we just keep redoing the same thing. You know, the same conversation happens over and over again with all of the same reactions. And uh, I think it, it it will always help if you can get two people to uh, who have a problem to relate to each other outside of the context of their old story. You know, if they get back into doing the same dance, they're going to do the same dance, and you know, it's not going to change anything. Do you have a specific situation in mind? Or? Yeah, it's it's a story between two people and they both have their different views of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And there could be, there, it's coming to a head where they could be open mm -hmm. to talk to each other. But I was just thinking probably, my fantasy yeah. was, was yeah. what you were talking about with the letter, that they would both say what their letter is and then they yeah. resolve it. And I realized it is, it's, it is a pure fantasy. So, yeah. so I'm thinking like, well, maybe it's just like having them over for supper. Mm -hmm. 
and so that they're not, they don't get into the old story, and they, but I don't know. I mean, do they but, act know, differently? I think the most helpful thing that you can do uh, is to, if each of them individually can get to the place of really, really wanting to resolve the problem enough that, that they're willing to take responsibility for resolving it uh, upon themselves. In a way, if, if, if they could come to a place of genuine selfishness, the recognition that this situation makes me feel bad, and I want to get to a place where I don't ever have to feel bad about it again, then, then that might make them open to uh, much more open than they otherwise would to different possibilities of what has to be done. But I'm, I'm sure in this situation, like almost any situation, um, both parties are contributing to the problem, and it's coming from their own, their 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 own neurosis, their own needs, their own hurts, and their own suffering, and their own programmed way of uh, avoiding some kind of things and, and gaining others. And so, if they recognize, if you, if you recognize and you can make them recognize that writing a letter isn't going to make the other person change. As a matter of fact, give up on changing the other person. Turn the attention back around. But is, can, is there something that I can change from my side that will relieve me of the ongoing suffering that this situation has created? Then get them together. <laughs> and, and, and stay out of the way. <laughs> Just in case it doesn't work out. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Pam? Yes, it can. And the, you're right, there are a number of things like that. But you know, I think what I'd really like to bring this back to, you know, um, I forgot your name again. Gail. Gail. Gail was talking about how can she help these two other people. And the obvious thing to me is that these the best thing you can do for these two other people 
is to have them recognize that if they don't like their reality, they are the originator, the originator of their reality. And that's where the change has to take place. So there is a lot, there's a lot of good to be done in the world by mediation and different kinds of mediation. But I'm kind of suggesting that there is a level beyond that. And this applies to, to everybody and anybody you communicate it to will benefit from it. And that's that both the problem and the solution start here. That, uh, um, to use some classic Buddhist terminology, all of this is empty. It's a projection of my mind. So this problem that I have only exists, it doesn't exist outside of my mind. It exists in my mind. And that's the place to look for the solution to it. That we, we create our own reality over and over again, constantly. You know, and, and I, I'm not meaning that the person you have a problem with is, is this is just a dream and they're your nightmare fantasy, but they are a real conscious entity. But when you look at them and, and the reality that you're in says, this, this is a bad person that makes me unhappy, that's your reality. And that's what you need to change. And, and all the energy that goes into trying to change them or the situation or anything else, you know, is it's, it's going to come to nothing ultimately. You've got to make the change in here. So, talking sticks and things like that, you know, all those methods are wonderful. They have their place and they're useful. But I think there is this much deeper level that uh, we want to always keep in mind and draw not only our own attention to, but others. I live in an absolutely wonderful, perfect world. You know. Unfortunately, sometimes I forget that don't see it that way. So. And all of these beings that I'm surrounded by are wonderful, perfect beings, you know, even though sometimes they may seem to be totally the otherwise. <laughs> but I just need a different pair of glasses so I can see them properly. Everyone is yourself in another form. Well, thank you for this discussion. I've enjoyed it. I hope you have.